Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning, everyone. Hey, guess who was working the weekend shift? The United States Senate. Did you hear? I guess they did not see their shadows on Friday, so they did not go back into hiding for six more weeks of winter, six more weeks of negotiation on a bill that seemed like it would never come on immigration. They actually finalized the long-awaited bipartisan border deal. They actually finished it and announced it Sunday afternoon. Maybe they wanted to be done on time to watch SZA sing Kill Bill at the Grammys. Or maybe not. Well, maybe Tracy Chapman. Uh, maybe not. Okay, Joni Mitchell, nothing wrong with that. But did they even stay up late enough to see her? Did they even know that Both Sides Now is not a song about both sides of the aisle or criticizing both sidesism? Maybe. Anyway, the bill is out. As described on Politico, it would tighten the standard for migrants to receive asylum, automatically shut down the southern border to illegal crossings if migrant encounters hit certain daily benchmarks and send billions of dollars to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, as well as the border. Politico says in addition to mandating a border shutdown at 5,000 daily encounters, Republicans say that's too much, the bill would allow the president to invoke that authority at 4,000 per day. The bill may or may not have enough votes to pass in the Senate, with the 60 votes required to stop a filibuster, here's the main Republican negotiator, Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma, urging his GOP colleagues to vote yes. If we have a crisis on our southern border, and we do have a crisis on our southern border, that is a very real national security problem. We should address that and to do what we can to be able to solve that problem, not just hope it gets better or hope that an election solves an issue. An election solves an issue. Remember, Donald Trump is already lobbying against the deal. Senator James Langford, Republican from Oklahoma there. We have the perfect guest for this moment, I think, to describe the deal further and to put it in the bigger context of life and politics in the United States and Central America as they intersect around the border. It's New Yorker Magazine staff writer Jonathan Blitzer who has a new book called Everyone Who Is Gone Is Here, The United States, Central America, and the Making of a Crisis. Jonathan, thanks for coming on. Welcome back to WNYC. Thanks for having me. We'll get to the details of the bipartisan Senate deal and what good or bad effects it might have on asylum seekers or on people here. But would it be right to say your backstory of how we got to this crisis point begins with the Reagan administration in the 1980s? That's right. And and in fact, it begins even slightly before then, which is in 1980 with the passage of the 1980 Refugee Act, which was the first time in American history that the government codified refugee and asylum law in an American statute. And so So that would have been under President Carter. Exactly. And 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 almost immediately uh, the Reagan administration takes takes office. And then we kind of see you know, the rubber meet the road on this particular uh, on this particular piece of legislation. And of course, it's happening at the height of the Cold War. And so there's a collision of this human rights immigration law ethos as embodied in the act and the geopolitical reality of the U.S. prosecuting this Cold War in the region. Now, Reagan's big scandal in office was Iran-Contra, 
which included selling weapons to Iran, U.S.-Iran relations, obviously still a conflict today. We'll talk about that Mm -hmm. later in the show. But Mm -hmm. selling arms to Iran, why? To use the money to fund a rebel group in Nicaragua, Central America, that Congress refused to fund. And that was such an egregious thumbing of Reagan's nose in democracy's face. Uh, He wanted to fight communism that way by funding the Contra rebels. Congress was opposed to arming an insurgent group and keeping the the Cold War going in that hot war way. And Reagan found a way to fund them anyway by, of all things, also arming our arch enemies, Iran, as their leaders chanted, death to America. A little bit of 1980s history there. But how did that whole Contra thing turn out? Did it start a chain reaction that we're living with the results of today at the border? Well, you know, it was part and parcel of the U.S. government's approach to the whole region, which was, above all other things, to contain communism or the spread of leftism. And the U.S. government was willing to make all sorts of unsavory alliances and to do all sorts of counterproductive things to try to to set that broader ideological mission in motion. And so you, you saw what was happening in Nicaragua. That was obviously a political liability for the president, uncharacteristically, because at the same time, the U.S. government was also supporting a repressive military government in El Salvador and in Guatemala. On that issue, there was a lot less national controversy. For, for, for the most part, Reagan was pretty successful in using that issue politically to kind of shore up his support both on a foreign policy level, on a domestic level, and and what those civil wars that the U.S. had a hand in in the region started to do was it started to create a new global population of refugee seeking uh, asylum in the U.S. and and fleeing violence in the region. And so you know you kind of have this sort of circular situation where the U.S. gets involved in the region because it's concerned about the spread of communism, but in the process through its foreign policy and of course simultaneously through its immigration policy at home it's it's creating a new population of migrants who then increasingly over the years become really woven into the fabric of american life and your book tells us how at least 40 years of american presidents of both parties got us to this point here's a clip of president obama in 2012 and you write about Obama in the book, as he announced the DACA program, which, as many of our listeners know, allowed protection from deportation for young people who had been brought here illegally by their parents as children but came of age as Americans. He made sure to couple the policy with ways he was getting tough at the border and that Congress was not coming up with policies of its own. Here's Obama in 2012. In the absence of any immigration action from Congress to fix our broken immigration system, what we've tried to do is focus our immigration enforcement resources in the right places. So we prioritized border security, putting more boots on the uh, southern border than at any time in our history. Today there are fewer illegal crossings than at any time in the past 40 years. We focused and used discretion about whom to prosecute, focusing on criminals who endanger our communities, rather than students who are earning their education. And today, deportation of criminals is up 80%. We've improved on that discretion carefully and thoughtfully. President Obama in 2012. So, Jonathan, you write about Obama in your book and how he tried, I think we heard an example of it in the clip, to give Republicans enough of what they wanted to allow a path for law-abiding, undocumented people, and certainly that generation brought up 
as Americans from childhood in the DACA policy. So what's the heart of the Obama story as you see it in this context? There are two ways, to my mind, to understand that Obama moment in the broader sweep of the history. Uh, the first is that, you know, in 2014, you basically have the major collision of two kind of big events. First is just the politics. So in 2013, exactly as you heard uh, President Obama describe, there was this kind of steady push toward comprehensive immigration reform. And, and quite significantly, in uh, the summer of 2013, there was a bipartisan comprehensive immigration reform bill that passed the Senate. Um, it later died in the House. And one of the reasons it did uh, was because it collided with this moment at the southern border where there was seemingly overnight tens of thousands of unaccompanied children and families from Central America arriving to seek asylum. There was already a contingent of Republicans in Congress who opposed the idea of comprehensive immigration reform. They were already dragging their feet in the House, but they were looking for a kind of pretext to finally sabotage that bill. And with this sudden drama at the southern border, they had exactly the pretext they needed. And so 2014, to me, is a kind of major watershed moment in understanding this issue because the politics and the policy converge and explode. And the, the second thing that's significant in understanding this moment in history is um, there's an inflection point in 2014 or around the kind of period that you're describing, DACA, 2012, 2013, 2014, because for many years the kind of democratic outlook on how to handle immigration was to address the large population of undocumented uh, immigrants living in the United States. The estimates had them somewhere around 11 million. And and a big part of the thinking on the democratic side was, you know, we need we we need to do what it takes to get comprehensive reform over across the finish line to provide relief to this population that's been living without papers in the United States for many years, in some cases, decades. Mm -hmm. um, and at a certain point, the bottom falls out on that agenda because of Republican opposition in Congress. And that really leaves the Democrats in a kind of tailspin because all of this effort over the years, steady and systematic toward that end, suddenly gets redirected. And in 2014, there's a new problem, which is people are arriving at the southern border. The center of gravity shifts and there's really now a kind of human and policy imperative to address these needs at the southern border. That's a whole new category of policy issue. And so, you know, Democrats were unfamiliar with dealing with that particular um, kind of complex operational challenge. Republicans started to game this issue out even more politically. And so in many ways, that's where we remain right now. And what really happened under Trump? I mean, his rhetoric, as we all know, is very anti-immigrant. He he played that Republican intransigence uh, on that kind of deal you were just describing. And that goes all the way back, not just to Obama, but you were saying multiple Democratic presidents. So that obviously means under President Clinton, uh, they were trying to do the same thing, more border security that the Republicans wanted in exchange for a path to citizenship for law-abiding undocumented people who are already here. And there was in each generation, uh, a degree of Republican buy-in. You know, John McCain was really not campaigning on any different kind of immigration policy than Obama was in 2008. Correct me if you think that's wrong. But they, I, as I recall history, they both um, supported that kind of comprehensive immigration reform. Then it kind of came close in 2013, 2014, as you were describing with another bipartisan push, um, but the hardline Republicans were against it. And then Trump runs for president in 2016 and taps into that 
and wins on that on that passion. So at least in terms of Trump's victory, um, do you uh, do you see that story the way I just laid it out? Yeah, exactly. And, and one other way of understanding it is essentially to see, you know, far right Republicans during the years you described, during the years of, you know, uh, George H.W. Bush, Clinton, uh, George W. Bush, Obama, um, the, the, the fringe members of the Republican Party during those years essentially played the role of spoiler anytime there was a big piece right. of legislation uh, that came into Congress. And I'm glad um, you mentioned George W. Bush because, in fairness, he wanted that, too. He had been governor of Texas. He had a, a fairly enlightened, if that's the right word, um, view or at least you know willing to compromise uh, complex view of immigration. And he got stymied by his own party, even as president. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of overlap between, you know, moderate Democrats and and somewhat moderate Republicans on this issue. And and the, the people who were able to sabotage these deals in Congress really kind of gained not just in, in, in prominence, but in influence uh, around the time that Donald Trump arrives on the scene. And so I'm thinking about the likes of Jeff Sessions in the Senate, um, who was notorious all the way through for being kind of in the wilderness on these issues, for being seen as fringe and kooky and, and, and really quite out there, um, but who... Uh, finally saw in, in, in Trump an opportunity to weaponize this issue. And Trump did it on a scale and with a level of successfulness, honestly, on the campaign, on the campaign trail that no one had ever really demonstrated before. And so, you know, what you start to see during the Trump years is a real inversion of what in the past was a kind of grudging consensus uh, about the need for there to be, say, more legal immigration or eventually some solution um, at, at the border and beyond. Trump pretty systematically tried to sabotage not just the legal immigration system, but also to t to exploit flaws that needed to be dealt with and that could have been dealt with in the asylum system and the refugee program and, and really use those, um, those, those weaknesses to run the systems into the ground. And we've basically been dealing with the wreckage ever since. And I guess that's a a partial answer to the next question I was going to ask you, because Trump's rhetoric, as we all know, has been very anti-immigrant, build that wall, and they're bringing crime and drugs, all of that. And there was a family separation policy that drew such a human outcry and a backlash while he was president. But what's the actual Trump administration border legacy? Well, I'm glad you ask it like that, because I think there's this assumption right now when you look at how Republicans perform in polls uh, on issues related to the border and immigration, there's this widespread perception, mis misimpression, uh, that Republicans have more of a commitment to order at the border. Um, and I do not think that that's the legacy that that, that Donald Trump can campaign on. Um, you know, you mentioned the family separation crisis from the summer of 2018. The idea of that, of course, was to address a population that had posed real operational challenges to American border authorities, which was families coming to the U.S. seeking asylum. There are very strict uh, kind of legal restrictions on how the government can process and handle families because there were children uh, that, that the U.S. government owes particular deference to. Um, and the Trump administration's approach was, okay, we're going to brutalize these families at the border as a way of deterring other families and persuading them not to come. And so you obviously saw this horrific period, a real low in, in American history. Um, and it was utterly counterproductive on top of it all. And so the next year in 2019, the number of people showing up at the southern border exploded. Um, and so this idea that a, a tough border policy could somehow you know, rewire pressures in the region or the wider world is a complete pipe dream. And it always has been. 
Um, but it somehow metabolized in our politics uh, this notion that, you know, the tougher you are, the kind of more orderly you are. And that is really not the case. Jonathan Blitzer is my guest. If you're just joining us, New Yorker staff writer who has a new book called Everyone Who Is Gone Is Here, The United States, Central America, and the Making of a Crisis. And we're going through some of the important points in his book uh, and in the context of today's news as kind of a setup to the bipartisan border bill that came out of the Senate just yesterday afternoon, and we'll get to that. But your book tells its big geopolitical story and all this history that we've been uh, walking through through four individual stories. And I want to give you a chance to tell at least part of one. So maybe the story of Lucretia Hernandez Mack, a doctor who is politically active in Guatemala, but really pick your one. Oh, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted that you mentioned her. I, you know, she, Lucrecia is an interesting case um, because she comes from a very distinguished family of activists in Guatemala. And she is the only of the four characters who is not an immigrant. And, and she figures in the book precisely for that reason. I wanted to show people just beyond the broader story of the U.S. government and the wider region, kind of what the reality is like in some of these countries, the, the role that the U.S. has played in, in creating some of those conditions, but also, you know, what the democratic fight has consisted of in these places um, to sort of show the odds that a lot of these uh, activists, policymakers and and eventual immigrants are, are up against. Um, but the idea of the book was to find, you know, a few different characters. There, there are two from El Salvador. Um, there's a, another from Honduras. And the idea is to tell the story of a kind of profound shift that we saw um, that basically took root over the last decade and is even beginning to shift again now, which was, you know, in the past, the typical profile of someone who showed up at the southern border was that of a Mexican male crossing looking for work. Right. Um, and what began to change in the sort of t- late 2010s and, and that really kind of exploded in 2014 was that you suddenly had uh, arriving on a massive scale families from Central America seeking asylum. And this posed real operational and administrative challenges at the U.S. border. Um, and and the book is the story basically of how that moment in 2014, because of the way we tend to understand these dynamics in the U.S. filtered through Washington politics, seemed like a, a complete surprise. It seemed like it came out of left field that suddenly all these people should show up at the border. Um, but the idea of of the lives of the characters who figure in this book is to show that that this plot really began in many ways in 1980 and kind of steadily advanced through the 80s while the U.S. was involved um, in all of these Central American civil wars because of the broader Cold War ideology that governed life in Washington. And then in the 1990s, how American deportation policy uh, and immigration policy at home started to affect violence in the region uh, and how some of the violence in the streets of American cities started to spread and metastasize through the region, all of which contributed to the fact that in 2014, people were fleeing exactly that when they showed up at the southern border. Just just one one thing on the that 1980s context that mm-hmm. you just mentioned again and we talked about before. If the U.S. was supporting uh, the fighters, either if either, you know, the well, let's say the fighters against the left wing uh, governments like in Nicaragua or or supporting the right-wing governments like in El Salvador, um, and that contributed to where we are today. 
Where does Venezuela fit, fit in, which isn't technically in Central America, it's in South America, but such a big source of the asylum seekers today, the biggest, I think, that's a mm-hmm. left-wing mm-hmm. authoritarian state under Maduro, previously Hugo Chavez. So what, why do Republicans or right, right-wing policies take any of the blame, if they do, for asylum seekers from there? Well, what we're seeing right now is is even a new shift. So, so my book is is interested primarily in essentially the last ten years of history, and, and over the last ten years, the the story has been the story of the U.S. and Central America. Now, Central Americans continue to show up in huge numbers at the southern border seeking asylum. But to give you a sense of kind of the world historical nature of this moment, and the fact that you know in the hemisphere we're seeing ma- mass migration on a scale that honestly we haven't witnessed since the Second World War, um, the the numbers of Central Americans are even being eclipsed by other populations. And this is where Venezuela fits in. You know, over the last several years, millions of people have fled Venezuela. Um, and that has really changed the dynamics at the border. Some of the underlying structural problems remain the same. You know, the U.S. has never meaningfully updated its immigration system writ large and its asylum system at the border specifically. Um, the profile of Venezuelans showing up at the southern border poses particular challenges to the asylum system as it existed in the past. The asylum system was basically meant to deal with people who were suffering identity-based persecution. Um, and so the terms of the statute are pretty specific and narrow in that regard. Um, when you see people fleeing Venezuela right now, you see them fleeing for their lives for sure. Um, but it doesn't map so plainly onto the definitions set forth in the statute from 1980. And so the question has become in Venezuela, you know, what does the U.S. do to address this flow of people in a humane and in a thoughtful way when the legal tools aren't really there? And mm. adding even another layer of complexity to this is the fact that until very recently, um, Venezuela would not accept American deportation flights. This is something that's often overlooked in the conversation about U.S. deportation policy. There's a huge level of diplomacy that goes into uh, you know, who and how the U.S. can carry out these deportations. Oh, because so, we can't just kick people out? Somebody has to take them back? Exactly, exactly. And you know, for 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 the last couple of years, and this has started to change as a result of high level diplomatic interventions. But you were seeing large numbers of people showing up at the southern border from Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela. Three governments that, because of deeply strained diplomatic relations with the U.S., would not accept deportation flights. And so the U.S. had this very acute problem of, okay, what do we do with this population when it shows up at the southern border? And so now, essentially, you know, the way I kind of assimilate the, the the broader reality of what's happening in South America with the kind of existing situation that I write about in the book is essentially to see that, you know, what what the Central American crisis brings into view is how, you know, U.S. foreign policy and the wider world animate all of these dynamics we see at the border. And because of just the utterly bruising politics in Washington, there have really been no meaningful efforts to reform the system. And so what happens is when Congress doesn't pass laws to expand other forms of legal immigration, the pressure point shifts to the border. And so people who don't have other options in terms of legally emigrating to the United States, say for jobs or to reunify with family, with family members living here, is they increasingly try their luck at the southern border. And that's what overwhelms the system. And that's what ends up really undercutting the asylum system, which was never designed to manage this kind of flow of people. The scale is just too vast. 
So listeners, there's your 20-minute history class before we get to the breaking news. Uh, a reminder of some historical context from Jonathan Blitzer's new book, Everyone Who Is Gone Is Here, The United States, Central America, and the Making of a Crisis. And you all get an A in this history lesson because the only criteria is showing up, and there you are. And we'll continue in a minute with Jonathan's specific take on the bipartisan border compromise announced by the Senate yesterday, and take your calls. So stay with us. Brian Lehrer on WNYC, and if you're just joining us, New Yorker staff writer Jonathan Blitzer is here with his new book, Everyone Who Is Gone Is Here, The United States, Central America, and the Making of a Crisis. And to give us his take on the bipartisan immigration deal coming out of the Senate announced just yesterday afternoon after months of closed-door negotiations. Again, if you haven't heard the, the basics on this as described on Politico, I'm reading the Politico version, it would tighten the standard for migrants to receive asylum, automatically shut down the southern border to illegal crossings if migrant encounters hit certain daily benchmarks, and send billions of dollars to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, as well as the border. And Politico says, in addition to mandating a border shutdown at 5,000 daily encounters, the bill would allow the president to invoke that authority at 4,000 per day. We know the Republicans say that's still way too many, and that's one of the reasons it might not pass, even though a bipartisan group of negotiators uh, has come up with the bill. So, Jonathan, not to get lost right away in some of those weeds— um, I assume you've been paying attention since you wrote this book. What's the headline from this deal, according to you? I see sort of two headlines. Uh, the The first is, you know, the conversation on immigration generally has has shifted increasingly to the right over the last couple of years to the extent that right now the context for understanding what is being touted as a major cut at immigration reform uh, is something that's relatively narrow. Uh, it's something that's much less ambitious than we would have seen in the past. And Democrats are much more willing than they've ever been in the past to go to the negotiating table without simultaneously trying to secure things like legalization for undocumented immigrants living in the United States. So the first thing to take stock of is just how this conversation has increasingly drifted rightward over the years as a result of the acute political pressures that emerge from the southern border. The The second headline on the actual specifics of the bill is I have to say, under the circumstances, given how you know, kind of conservative the cast of the conversation has become, and given how quick the White House has been to try to flex its muscles and demonstrate that this shows their seriousness about cracking down at the southern border, uh, I actually think it's much more of a mixed bag than I would have expected. It really does seem to be a, a, a compromise of the different elements at the table. So just as you see kind of harsher measures, such as changes made to uh, standards by which someone would be able to to pursue asylum, or you see measures like allowing the president to declare a border emergency and quote unquote shut down the border. There are also built into some of that uh, protections that I frankly would not have expected to see in this bill under the circumstances where it seemed like the Republicans had such an upper hand going into the negotiations. So, for example, uh, from that Politico description that I read, it would tighten the standards for migrants to receive asylum. Is it clear to you how? Yeah. So the first step when someone seeks asylum is to pass a preliminary screening known as the credible fear interview. 
um, and essentially like in this their process- first contact with somebody from the government, like near the border when they present themselves as an asylum seeker, right? Exactly. And and the structural problem right now that exists in the system is the immigration courts are so badly backlogged that it takes years between when someone first passes that initial screening and when they eventually come before an immigration judge to have his or her case be adjudicated. And so and the Republicans instances- complain, yeah, that's three or four years that they can be in the country and they don't want that number of people to just be in the country without being determined to be uh, legitimate asylum seekers. Yes. And, 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 and quite honestly, I think there's a lot of bad faith on the Republican side in, in these negotiations in general. But, but, but actually, that's not such a crazy criticism of the situation. I mean, the system can't function. It, it, in, in a certain sense, it's not humane either for people to be forced to live in limbo like that right. for so many years. And it, and it really does incentivize people who don't have strong asylum claims to come pass the initial hearing, which has a very high grant rate, and then just kind of stay in the United States. Um, and so there are people who have very legitimate claims that tend to get sort of swept away in this broader dysfunction. So it's not it's, it's not a it's not an unreasonable thing for legislators to want to solve. And and one of the things that this bill does is it basically makes it a little harder to pass that initial credible fear screening. Um, and it also you know kind of codifies things that are were already a part of uh, that screening and the government's handling of an immigration uh, an asylum case. So for instance. When you're presenting an asylum claim um, on arriving at the southern border, you essentially have to prove that you're being persecuted and that there wasn't anywhere else in your home country that you could you know, flee to to reduce the threat that you faced. That was a kind of uncodified um, but widely acknowledged burden that an asylum seeker had to clear in order to pass these screenings. Now that is codified in this bill. And so there's no question that these are these are significant changes to the asylum system, and we've not seen them ever before. Um, and so that aspect of the bill is, you know, conservative. It, it, it's noteworthy, um, and you know, it's 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 something probably that the Democrats felt like under the circumstances they couldn't quite fend off, given the political pressure around this issue. So let me get this straight: somebody who walks across the border and claims that they're seeking asylum. What they encounter is uh, uh, somebody from the Border Patrol, basically a cop, right? Not a judge in a court, not somebody with a deep knowledge of Guatemalan politics and who's in danger from there, say, um, a cop. And if that cop says, no, your story doesn't sound credible, then the person gets turned back? Well, Technically, um, there are there is a there is a core of government agent at a different DHS agency uh, called uh, USCIS, which is Immigration and Citizenship Services, and um, those asylum officers are the ones who conduct these initial screenings. But an important part of this bill, and something that I think is quite positive about it, is uh, measures are taken to make sure that border patrol agents are not part of these screenings. Okay. You know, even if the resources are spread thin at the border, the idea, as codified in this bill, is border patrol agents aren't qualified to conduct interviews that are this sensitive. And the bill specifically mentions these asylum officers uh, to conduct these interviews. Um, and what's more, it, it tries to create a broader um, staff of asylum officers 
to handle the whole of someone's asylum claim. Because what happens right now and what's gumming up the system in many ways is you pass this credible fear interview that's conducted by an asylum officer. And then eventually your case makes its way to an immigration judge. And right now, because of the backlogs, that takes years. But it should be said that there's a lot of variance among immigration judges. So depending on where you seek asylum, whether it's in Texas, say, or Illinois, the, the rates at which asylum is granted vary pretty sharply. Um, and so the system is really, as it exists right now, not only inefficient, but but quite unfair. And so one of the proposals that you know left of center policy experts have been making for quite a while is that there needs to be a dedicated core of asylum officers who handle the whole of someone's asylum claim. Um, they're, in theory, specifically trained in understanding the details of these claims. Uh-huh. Uh, and what's more, they're able to move the claim more speedily than a judge who's backed up with all these other cases. So that's also in this bill. Um, and that reflects something that that you know Democrats have, have wanted for some time, that I do think is a meaningful fix to certain aspects of the technical problems of the border. Listeners, now we're going to get to some of your comments or questions on the Senate immigration deal as announced yesterday, or anything for Jonathan Blitzer from The New Yorker about the contents of his book. We've been discussing Everyone Who Is Gone Is Here, The United States, Central America, and the Making of a Crisis. Call or text us at 212-433-WNYC, as some people already are, 212-433-9692. And and the first question I'm going to give you from a listener comes in a text message, and they're responding uh, to the title of your book, the subtitle, The United States, Central America, and the Making of a Crisis. And the question is, what exactly is the crisis to be solved? And, And I'll note that immigration advocates say, it's not a crisis. Crisis is an anti-immigrant propaganda word. It's just a lot of people who are a tiny percentage of the U.S. population, um, like a lot of people came in the past to better themselves in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's funny. The word crisis has gotten co-opted right now by Republicans attacking the Democratic administration. But I, I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that you know, the humanitarian crisis is real. And so the, the crisis at the core of my book is that, you know, there are people who have been fleeing for their lives from Central America because life in the region has become too dangerous, unsustainable, in many cases, uninhabitable, all the result of, you know, a complex tangle that also involves the United States and its foreign policy. Uh, and so, you know, people showing up at the southern border seeking protection that's one of the humanitarian crises that the book gets into. Um, and and then what happens next, and, and to me, a key part of understanding the broader crisis as the history of it plays out, is that you know there is a certain promise that existed in the, in the U.S. asylum system that I basically don't think was ever fully delivered. And now we've moved to a moment where the global migration phenomenon has evolved to such complex levels that asylum law on its own doesn't deal with that population and doesn't deal with some of those realities. But even the asylum system as it existed, say, in the 1980s, just to give an example, um, because of U.S. Cold War uh, alliances in the region, um, the State Department intervened in asylum cases so that when you had Salvadorans or Guatemalans showing up at the southern border in the 1980s seeking asylum, those asylum claims were rejected. And they were rejected at rates that were so high that there was eventually a lawsuit And the government had to recognize and acknowledge that it had been systematically discriminating against Central Americans when they sought asylum. And so to my mind, 
these are different layers of the crisis. Um, now, when we get to the present moment, the word is fraught, obviously, because you know the idea is that you know we have to crack down more. And so, anytime someone acknowledges that the situation of the border is hairy, that tends to lead to very, very conservative policy outcomes. The way I understand this is to essentially say, right now, there are huge numbers of people seeking relief at the southern border. The relief they're seeking is real. Their needs are urgent. The U.S. has an obligation legally, morally to respond. Um, what makes the crisis particularly sinister is there are very concrete, specific things the U.S. government could do to reduce pressure at the border. It wouldn't solve the broader dynamics of the region. It would not be a silver bullet. But for partisan reasons, for the usual kind of cynical Washington reasons, you know, one of the parties primarily is blocking even the basic commonsensical changes that need to be made at the border down to the level even of funding. Um, and so, yes, we see the crisis kind of turn into this sort of mismanaged um, public relations scare tactic. Um, but I do think the underlying human reality is that there's real urgency in need of the border. Micah in Flatbush, who I think is no fan of the Senate bill. You're on WNYC. Hi, Micah. Hi, Brian. Thanks for taking my call. I just, in hearing the details of the bill, the bipartisan bill, I was struck at how the Democratic Party has essentially signed on in many ways to this vicious right-wing xenophobic agenda that they are constantly giving sops to the Republican Party, constantly buying the framing that the Republican Party is pushing on this question and is, despite being the supposed left-wing party for our country, uh, is, is largely signed on to the, much of the, the xenophobic project of the Republican Party, uh, despite the fact that, you know, we are a country, as your guest well knows, and I'm sure uh, has uh, explained in his book, like the United States is the reason why so many migrants from these countries are fleeing here, because we have caused chaos through our foreign policy over the last couple of decades. So in hearing about this, this bill, I'm just very struck at uh, there seems to be a lack of a robust defense on the part of the Democratic Party uh, for immigrants in this country. They're happy to sign up to basically whatever kind of framing the Republican Party wants. Micah, thank you very much. And on the other side of the coin, it may be dead on arrival in the Republican House. Here is Speaker Mike Johnson on NBC's Meet the Press yesterday. This is before the announcement of the deal by the Senate in the afternoon, uh, but the gist still applies. Here's what Speaker Johnson says the House would do. We would uh, reinstitute Remain in Mexico, which would stem the flow by probably 70 percent. We would end the, the catch and release, the, the release, the mass releases of illegals into our country that's happened. This border is out of control. And that's Speaker Mike Johnson. We also have Donald Trump uh, urging defeat of the deal. And Jonathan, here's a related question from a listener text message that says, how does it serve Trump's interests to oppose any legislative fix to the border crisis? Yeah, these are these are both good questions. You know, just to, to take the kind of most immediate one and then to go back to, to Micah's comment, which I think it has to be reckoned with, the, the, the question about how this benefits Trump is, you know, sort of the predictable Trump thing, which is, you know, the more this situation gets played up, the more chaotic the situation becomes at the border, um, the more generalized suffering there is and partisan bickering, the more of a claim he can make that he uniquely is able to fix the situation. And he's obviously always campaigned 
on this issue. He's he's weaponized all of the resentments and disagreements around this issue uh, to try to consolidate his support. And I think the current toxicity around immigration in Washington plays into that directly. So, you know, he's riding high. Um, to, to, to Micah's point, um, I, I think that there's a very, I, I mean, I, I'm in agreement that the Democrats have really ceded a lot of ground here um, and that they have really bought into a kind of framing that was handed to them by Republicans. And, and there are actually, I think, interesting kind of backstories to how that, how, how this particular capitulation came to pass. I mean, I think the short of it is essentially that the Biden administration kind of panicked in its early days. I think the border dynamics are incredibly complicated. They would be complicated on a good day, but they were especially complicated at this moment of time when there's, you know, mass migration at new heights, right. when, you know, you're coming off of the Trump years when the system was deliberately subverted. You're coming immediately off of the COVID pandemic. I mean, there were all of these complex things. And people things. see what's going on in New York and Chicago and Denver, uh, right? The crush on municipal services. Well, and I think, and, and, and this, this gets back to Micah's point, you know, I do think that there was a very specific turning point in the democratic discourse around this issue. Uh, and that dates to the moment in the spring of 2022 when the governor of Texas started busing asylum seekers to blue cities. Obviously, New York is, is front and center there. So is Chicago, Denver. Um, you had basically local city and state officials really start to panic, really start to become overwhelmed by the cost of handling the situation, the complexity of handling the situation. And I think that was a real pressure on the White House uh, that I, I do think that there was more the White House could have done to, to to have fended that off at an earlier stage. But I think in many ways, the big story around this bill and around these negotiations is that the Democratic position is changing. There's a real acknowledgement that they need to look tough. And I and I do think that that, that basically has meant buying into this frame. But as an example, you know, I, I'm just sitting here with the text of the bill and I'm trying to, under the circumstances, and, and maybe this sounds resigned of me, but under the circumstances where the politics are what they are, and it's obviously distressing for all kinds of reasons, I, I'm very interested to see how particular provisions of this bill play out and to see, you know, how the Republicans might press their upper hand. And so, for example, you know, one of the most distressing things about the rhetoric around this bill is how the president rushed out to say, even before the negotiations had ended, even before the bill had actually materialized, he rushed out to say, listen, one of the things in this bill that I, that will empower me as president that I plan to, to make use of is the ability to, quote unquote, shut down the border. Now, obviously, it's incredibly striking to hear someone who in 2020 campaigned on the exact opposite make this point now, and it shows how much the political winds have changed. But then you dig into that provision. And obviously, that provision is problematic for all kinds of reasons. But what it essentially says is when there is a certain number of people who show up at the southern border, the government has to cease processing asylum claims. 5,000 in, in one day. Yeah, it, it, exactly. There are different benchmarks. It's 5,000 average over the course of one week or 8,500 in a single day. Okay. Um, and so, okay, what does it mean then for the U.S. to basically, quote unquote, shut down the border? The shutting down the border thing is a bit of rhetoric that is frankly baffling. I mean, the president cannot shut down the border. Uh, you know, millions of people cross every day, including legally at ports of entry. Um, what it refers to, this, this notion of shutting down the border, is that they'll stop processing asylum claims. In a certain sense, that's already happening right now because the resources aren't there to meet the needs of people arriving. Um, and so one of the things that struck me about the language of this bill, again, I, I'm, I'm clear eyed about what it means that a, a Democratic president is talking almost gleefully about shutting down the border. But built into that provision is the idea 
that there are 1,400 asylum slots at every point port of entry during that state of emergency. So, you know, what the government is trying to play with is the idea of it's trying to disincentivize people to cross in between ports of entry. And it's trying, I don't think all that successfully, and I don't think this bill does it, uh-huh. to direct people to ports of entry where there's more resources, more infrastructure, and the means to process people's claims. There has never been, to my knowledge, uh, a numerical uh, sort of ceiling set for how many asylum claims authorities are supposed to um, process at a port of entry. And so the flip side of this emergency declaration is this 1400 figure, which I have to say, I mean, I was surprised to see it. That's that's that that number itself is a relatively positive development, obviously, in this broader context, in this broader tangle that 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 Micah and others are rightly distressed by. So I just want to, you know, I say that just to show that, you know, when you really dive into it, um, there are some striking and interesting aspects to this to this deal. One more caller, kind of the opposite number of Micah, I think. David in the Bronx, you're on WNYC. And David, with apologies, we have 30 seconds for you. Yeah, I just wanted to raise a hypothetical, which I think is relevant. Let's say one day every single person from Venezuela woke up and said, hey, we're going to come to the United States. They, they can't really stop us. And it got to a point where there were hundreds of thousands of people marching up trying to cross the border. And the United States faced a breakdown of, of, of society to the point where our kids couldn't go to school, our police couldn't police. There were you know, massive slums and, and villages popping up. At what point would, would the president send the National Guard down there to stop it? And I think that's relevant because I think there are a lot of people thinking right now, why can't Biden, if this is an international emergency, why can't Biden do more as the most powerful person on the face of the earth to stop this? Thank you so much. David, thank you. One last response, Jonathan, and then we're out of time. You know, it, it's it, it's funny. I actually think one of the most concrete things the administration has done in, in dealing with the reality that you rightly identify that huge numbers of people, unmanageable numbers of people are leaving and need to leave Venezuela is actually to create, there's a program that that fortunately remains intact despite this bill. And I, I expected this, this program to get dismantled in some fashion in the bill, and it wasn't. And that is a parole program that allows a certain number of Venezuelans to come to the United States legally every month um, through uh, an application process they set in motion before they leave their home country or before they come to the U.S. southern border. And, and one of the striking things about what the administration has tried to do, and it's not gotten that much attention, and I think it's actually an important way to deal with the reality of mass migration in our world, is to recognize that if you give people legal ways to come to the United States, there is a way for the government to manage that situation. And the the, the knockdown effect will be there's less chaos at the border. And so when the U.S. government used this parole program to deal with Venezuelans, um, Cubans, Nicaraguans, and Haitians, you saw... By creating these avenues for people to come legally, you saw a 90% drop in how many of these people from these countries showed up at the southern border. So there are levers that can be pulled that are not just harsh at the border that actually, I think, uh, suit everyone and would actually bring a, a broader order to the system. New Yorker staff writer Jonathan Blitzer, obviously following all the details of the Senate immigration Uh, reform compromise that was announced yesterday, and also the author of the brand new book, which gives decades of context for this. Really, really, really good. Everyone who is gone is here, the United States, Central America, and the making of a crisis. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. 
Brian Lehrer on WNYC. We turn the page. Much more to come.